what I'm going to be preaching on on a Sunday morning months and months in advance. And so I have no idea when I put together various uh, series and plan different Sunday mornings, I have no idea what's going to be going on during that week. But the pattern, and this isn't unique to me, other um, preachers will, will speak of this, is that God has an uncanny way of bringing circumstances in your life that week to help you uh, feel and address and apply those, the principles from God's word that he's seeking to communicate to the congregation. So you can imagine what I'm feeling like on Monday morning when I realize that the following Sunday I'm going to be preaching on death. Uh, a little disconcerting. Sure enough, Monday night I get the call that one of our church members is uh, not expected to live through the night. Uh, as was uh, reported uh, during the announcement time, uh, our sister Helen Shepherd went home to be with the Lord yesterday. And this week I spent a lot of time in palliative care. Uh, as I was sitting at Helen's bedside, at one point I heard from across the hall, I don't want to die. I heard, and I, it's not like I was, I, if anything, I was trying to block out the sounds that I was hearing from surrounding rooms, but you can't help but hear the sounds that are coming from different rooms. Uh, at another point, I heard someone else say, uh, kind of recounting what their life had added up to or hadn't added up to. And she said, my life doesn't mean anything. Uh, as just as she looked back, the things that she hadn't done, the things that she felt she should have done, it just didn't seem to add up to anything. And that filled her with a sense of regret as now she was facing uh, her last days. We don't like to talk very much about death. And uh, in the case of the people in the palliative care ward, at least they have a little, bit of, a little bit of warning of what's coming. They have a clear expectation that they are soon facing uh, their last. Uh, but that's not always the case. Uh, it wasn't the case for a man by the name of Coleman, uh, uh, Coleman Monkler. Uh, he had spent probably very little time contemplating his end. Uh, Coleman Mockler was an uh, MBA uh, grad from the Harvard Business School. Very accomplished uh, young man when he joined uh, Gillette, uh, the, the shaving company. Uh, he joined the company in 1957, navigated a series of promotions, and found himself, I think in 1976, yeah, in 76, found himself at the top of the, top of the company. He was chairman. He took a 75-year-old company at the time and transformed it into a global force. Uh, in 16 years as head of the company, he saw the stock value uh, increase some 50 times uh, to what it was when he started. He was celebrated for the impact that he made in that company. So much so that when he announced uh, that he would be retiring at the end of the year, uh, different, different people and organizations were reflecting on his tenure as, uh, as CEO. Uh, 
Forbes magazine decided to do a cover story uh, with him as the subject. And uh, the title of the, of the cover story was Triumph for Gillette's Coleman Mockler. If you go online, you can see these. It's, it's like this triumphant picture of him like some superhero having led the, the company through gr such great success. The Forbes magazine article was to come out in February. On January 21st, Coleman got an advance copy. He gets the advance copy and he walks down the hallway to his office. And as he does so, the other executives that are, have seen, the, seen him on the cover and recognize what's happening, they begin to spontaneously applaud him uh, and they're applauding all of his achievements. He walks down, if you can picture the, the scene, he's walking down the hall, they're applauding his achievements, he gets to his office, closes the door, and collapses from a heart attack, dies, still holding on to the Forbes magazine advance copy that he'd received. Just so sudden, so unexpected. It, it had seemed like this perfect day, and then it wasn't. No time to, to think or to prepare. And unfortunately, that's often the way it is with death. And it's that problem of the unexpectedness of death is exasperated by the fact that you and I don't really like to think about it very much, and we certainly don't like to talk about it very much. I don't know how many more opportunities you will have or I will have before our Coleman Mockler time comes. I, I, what I do know is our, our time will, all of us will face that uh, time and that, that day will come. And not knowing how many more opportunities we will have, I do know that we have maybe 30 and 35 minutes this morning to, to think about it. And so I want to encourage you to think about it. I, I want to encourage you to listen with a sense of your own personal uh, preparation and fate and, uh, and a recognition that God wants to speak into uh, this most uh, uh, serious and uh, significant time in all of our lives. Uh, to do that, I'm not going to give you uh, my, my tips and ideas about death. I'm going to take you to God's word. And so I want to encourage you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we've been looking at this letter together for, for uh, several weeks now in a series we call it Inextinguishable Joy. And I want to read with you from uh, Philippians 1, verses 19 to 26. Philippians 1, 19 to 26. Paul writes this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of God. Now, in the center of this passage, in verse 21, there is a very simple but profound sentence. And it just says this, when Christ, uh, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so my very simple thesis to you this morning is that when Christ is your life, then death is gain. And only when Christ is your life does death become gain. It won't just feel like gain because you're a Christian. In fact, there are some people who will not make Christ their life and they will feel, as they approach their final days, feel a sense of great loss because something has been more significant, more central in their life. Death can be declawed and even transformed into something that the scriptures declare is blessing and even benefit, gain. But it comes as we make Christ our life. So to understand what this means, I'm going to answer from the text three questions. What does it mean to live as Christ? What are we talking about? How is it possible that death could actually be gain, that it could actually be better by far? And how can we, in this whole area, move from wishful thinking about death to settled confidence about death? How do we we sort those things out? So let's try to understand what it means first to live is Christ. To live is Christ is simply to center your life in Christ and view your life in relation to him through his eyes. Now, to start with, when the Bible uses a phrase like, to live is Christ, it's intended to be the defining statement, your mission statement, the thing that that sits at the center of how you see your life and everything else fits uh, around that and is uh, seen in relation to that. The reality is, though, uh, both inside the church and out, people make a million other things their defining center. They make their mission a whole bunch of other things other than Christ. So instead of saying to live is Christ, they will put, and we will put in all kinds of other things in place of Christ as kind of our defining center. Jesus may have a part of our life. He may get a bit of our attention, but he's not at the center. He's not the the center at which we would say, no, to live, it's, it's about Christ. And as a result, when death comes, we can't help see our life in terms of loss, of what we're giving up, what we're leaving behind. So, for instance, pro- probably one of the most common ones for, for people is, to live is family. People don't use those words. Typically, they'll say, what it's all really about is family. Or, in the end, what's really most important 
is family. Except that, that sense of that mission statement of life gets tested when you face your end and you realize death brings painful loss, painful loss of family members. Or some people will say, no, to live is achievement. To live is to carry out this thing that I've been called to do here and, and to, to, to achieve, to be successful. And if that's your center, then you face your death and you realize death comes with a painful loss of purpose. Or maybe you say, to live is friends. To live is the relationships that I have. But if that's your center, then you face your death and you realize death is the painful loss of these people that I made my everything, my center. Christians can be convinced that they're going to heaven because they believed in Jesus. But if they put something else as the center, then death will always feel like painful loss. It'll be the painful loss of whatever you placed as most central. Uh, Jesus, I believe, confronted the mission statement of our generation in Luke 12. Uh, Here's where he tells the parable of the man who had laid up ample goods for many years. And he lays out his center, his mission statement with these words, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's his goal. That's at the center. Of, he may have other things going on in his life, but this is really central for him. And in verse 20, God warns him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? God warns him of painful loss. That warning of painful loss is not just for the person who has made pleasure their center. The warning of painful loss is for anyone who has made anything else other than Jesus their center. Because it's a recognition that we will all face the loss of all of these things. Now, at this point, centering our life in Christ still feels too abstract, right? What does that actually mean? How does that actually play out? So the passage will spell it out in two ways. The first is in verse 20. If you look there, Paul writes, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now we've seen earlier that Paul is, he's in Rome, he's in imprisonment, He's waiting a a trial before Caesar where he will be found either acquitted or facing a sentence of death. You would think the main thing on Paul's mind is, am I going to live or am I going to die? But as you look at the passage, you realize that's really not his concern at all. His concern is something deeper. What he is concerned about is that Christ is honored through him. If he dies, his his desire is that Christ would be honored through his death. If he lives, he prays that his life would be, that Christ would be honored through his life, through the way he conducts his life. His passion, his goal, his center is to honor Christ. And that's one one of the ways that we can understand this term, to live as Christ. 
is to set your heart on honoring him, whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance. But at that point, you may get the impression, oh, I guess to, to live as Christ, you've just got to kind of withdraw from the world and pray and read your Bible all day. Like there's, maybe, maybe Paul was kind of a recluse. Maybe to live as Christ means you've got to join a monastery or somehow cut yourself off from the world. And so Paul's, Paul gives us more clarification because that's not how he's living his life at all. In verse 22, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. He's saying, if I'm acquitted and I continue to live, that means God has an assignment for me. That means, means that God has something for me to do in order to honor him. But now watch how he defines that assignment. In verse 24, he says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He's saying, if God spares my life, it's for your sake. If, if God gives me breath to live more days, it must mean that he wants me to make another investment in your life. He sees his, his life in relationship to the assignments that God would give him, and particularly in relation to other people. Then in verse 25 and 26, he gets really specific. He says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. When we look at life and death, we tend to define it in these terms. If God lets someone live, it's because he's gonna, he wants them to have some more happy days. And if God ends someone's life, it's because he's mean and something went wrong. And Paul and the scriptures don't see life and death in those terms whatsoever. Totally different. Paul sees life as an opportunity to honor Christ. That's how he sees, that's, that's his grid for, for understanding what each day of his, his life is all about. He has deep, satisfying relationships with the Philippians. They really are dear to him, and, and, and he's dear to them. Precious relationships. But at the center of his relationship with them, he says, it's their progress and joy in the faith. He sees his role as helping them glory in Christ. And so to center your life in Christ is to see, not, not to cut yourself off from the people in this world, not to cut yourself off from the stuff of this world. It's just to recognize that life is never intended to be ultimately about the stuff. It's never intended ultimately even to be about the people. That we're to see the stuff that God has given us and to say, how do I honor the one who made me? How do I honor the one who saved me through this stuff? And, and to look at the relationships that God has given me and to say, how do I honor him in this relationship? These people are precious to me. What is God, what's God's assignment for me to love them in Christ, to, to represent him before them, to help them to see the joy and the love and the salvation that there are in my Savior? It's to see your life through his eyes, through Jesus at the center. 
So when Christ is our life, death becomes gain. We looked at what it means to say that say to live in Christ. Now we're going to look at the other half. What does it mean that death could actually be gain? How could that be benefit? How could that be better by far? And we see that death becomes gain when we center our lives in Christ and experience death as a door into his delights. The book of Ecclesiastes gives us a picture of someone who didn't choose Christ as their center, had gave himself to the, what he could accomplish in this world. He was diligent, hardworking, and accomplished in many ways. And he accomplished much and had much to show for it. The problem with his formula for life was when he faced death. And when he faced death, it made him feel that many of the things that he had accomplished were meaningless. They were meaningless because in view of death, they, their, their significance began to change considerably. In Ecclesiastes 2.18, he reflects on his accomplishments in light of his death, and he says this, I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun. And you think, oh, why did you hate the toil under your sun? He says, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. It's not that he hated his life. It's not that he didn't have much to look back on and feel a sense of satisfaction in. But it was as he viewed his life in view of his death that its significance changed. You develop a great invention. You build up a great business or even a great ministry. But if that is the center, then you recognize that at your death, you're not going to be in charge of what happens to it. You're going to pass it off to someone else. And they could make a big mess of it. And then you're asking, so what was it all for? What was I doing all that about? He describes a perspective of life with a phrase he repeats. He says, it's under the sun. It's life lived without any consideration of God. Life lived just not thinking about how God fits into the picture, how God desires to direct my steps and how, have me live my life. And a li- life lived like that in view of the inevit- inevitability of death, he says, is meaningless. It's vanity as he describes it. Compare that with Paul in verse 20 as he faces the prospect of his own death. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. It's a great phrase because as Paul writes it, he is in the pit of shame, the world's shame. When you think of Paul, you think of someone who has been trained by the top rabbis in his day. He has had all of the academic training. He has not only gotten that training, but he's excelled in it. He describes in other passages where he has excelled beyond his peers. He's the top of the class. He's recognized for his academic uh, accomplishments. But beyond that, he's also recognized because he has this zeal and this drive and this discipline. 
it makes him stand out. He is an achiever. But then he puts his faith in Christ. And it all kinds, kind of withers away. He's rejected by his peers. He's vilified by fellow Jews. Then he's imprisoned, imprisoned by Rome, treated like a criminal. He's regarded with shame. But as he considers his death, he says, it will not end in shame. I am being faced with the world's shame, but it will not stop there. It will not end there. He says, I will not at all be ashamed because he knows either in his trial or in his death, he will face the, the, the fate that is, is put upon him by the righteous judge. And it doesn't matter what, what the world will throw at him in terms of dishonor and disrespect. Because Christ is his life, death will be a time when all of the world's shame will be exposed as empty and meaningless. And he will, he will in turn receive the honor and the welcome and the acceptance of his Savior Jesus Christ. If Christ is your life, then you will be welcomed with honor Every act of faith, every sacrifice in Christ's name, every insult born for the name of Christ will be met with vindication. It will be met with celebration. It'll be a little bit like the last five minutes of Undercover Boss. When you didn't think anybody noticed. You're, you're the employee that didn't think that, that the boss knew about what you were doing, didn't see how faithful you'd tried to be, didn't see how you were living for him, and last five minutes you realize, no, he saw every, every step. He saw every act done in his name. And there's a recognition, there's the, the acknowledgement, and there's a celebration, and it makes it all worth it. So when Christ is your life, death becomes a time of vindication. But it's not just a time of vindication. Death also, for, for the person who has made Christ their life, becomes a door into this culmination of a friendship, a door to a friend. Death is met with anticipation because of the relationship. Look at verse 23. Paul is weighing the outcomes, depending on whether he's acquitted at trial or whether he faces the death sentence. And he is genuinely uh, uh, happy what, which, whichever of those takes place. But from a personal standpoint, he's clearly on the side of death. It, even as you hear that, you might think, oh, yeah, he's on the side of death because life is so terrible, he just wants it to end. And you're, there's not a hint that that's any of his motivation whatsoever. He's on the side of death because he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. How can the death sentence be far better? Only because he knows that the one who has loved him more deeply, more unconditionally, more faithfully, has been Jesus Christ. And he has been nurturing that love for him such that he is at the center. He is his love. 
He is his passion. And death becomes a door to meet him finally, to, to see him face to face and to enjoy the fullness of his, pre- of his relationship with him. His focus is on being with Christ. That's his joy. Notice he doesn't talk about any of the other things that many people often talk about. doesn't mention anything about purgatory. Doesn't, doesn't have any expectation of that. He, he doesn't talk about, oh, there would be these bright, shining lights, and you kind of go through that. He doesn't talk about that. He doesn't talk about, like, harps and clouds and, and, and like, any of that. His focus is on being with Christ. It's a door to a... doesn't even get talking about the family reunion and the... It's secondary. His focus is on being with Christ. And because he has made Christ his life, that death becomes his door to great gain. And he'll say, that's better by far. So we've said that when Christ is your life, death becomes gain. And to say that to live is Christ is when you center your life in Christ and view the world through his eyes. And death really can become gain because death becomes a door to vindication. Death becomes a door to a friend, to the most significant friend that we could ever have. But finally, I'd like to consider how our thoughts can move from wishful thinking to settled confidence. Because probably nowhere else other than this area of death does wishful thinking permeate our culture and our thinking. People can reject God all their life, explain away everything with science, have no indication at any point through their lives that they have any iota of uh, confidence in God or the spiritual, and yet when they die, everyone will say, well, he went to a better place. In fact, we say all kinds of things. You have been to the funeral. I've been to the funeral. We've all been to the funeral where um, someone has died and people will say all kinds of fanciful things about what the dearly deceased is doing. So he's he's probably up in in heaven having one of his favorite beers right now. Or she's probably chat- chatting with her girlfriends right now. And, and people will go on about their thoughts and their imaginations about what that dearly departed is surely doing right now without any sense of confidence of what, what the scriptures teach and, and what we can know about, about that life beyond because there is one who has come from beyond to tell us exactly what can be known. I want you to see, uh, I want you to see what this, in comparison to the wishful thinking that is a part of our day, the kind of confidence, kind of settled conviction someone can have about their death. Just look at some of the ways that Paul describes his confidence in this passage. In verse 19, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. In verse 20, he says, I will not be at all ashamed. In verse 21, he says, to die is gain. He does not say to die is gain-ish. Or to die is gain, maybe, I hope. 
It's a settled conviction. Clarity. Confidence. It'll be gain. It'll be better by far. He's he's confident because the scriptures have given him that confidence. Because the scriptures speak with a clarity of what can be known and how it can be known. Jesus himself gave clear and unmistakable promises. And those promises are for those who have trusted fully in Jesus Christ. They're not like most of our wishful thinking about life after death. Those thoughts don't ignore the reality of judgment. They don't ignore the reality of sin and its consequences. Instead, what those promises do is that they're is admit and concede the fact that there are painful consequences for sin. There is terrible judgment for sin, but that there was a greater Savior who bore the full weight of God's wrath on sin upon himself at the cross. And in in taking our place at the cross, dying as a criminal, though he was himself sinless, that through simple faith in him, turning from all of the things that we give our lives to and say, no, I'm going to live as Christ. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to put all my eggs in that basket. That we are forgiven, freed. And it is on that confidence, on that basis, that we can, we can know that death can be great gain. In the Bible, our confidence about heaven comes from faith in Christ. First uh, John 5, 12 and 13 say, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Then he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants us to know to be confident, to be assured that we have eternal life. And that confidence is not based on how, how much we've done, what we have attained, how good we are. It's on the basis that Jesus Christ had paid, has paid the penalty in our place and we have trusted in him. We have turned to him in faith. At that point, the, insur- the assurance that we'll spend eternity in God's presence is no longer about us. It's no longer about how good we are, how faithful we've been. It's about how faithful he is. Look at this uh, great promise from Jude, uh, verse 24. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jesus is able to keep you from stumbling. You put your trust in him and he is faithful. He is able to prevent you from stumbling. He is able to present you blameless. And after my time in palliative care ward this week, I'm convinced more than ever, you want to face that end with great confidence in a great and faithful Savior. To know that you have received from him the eternal life that he promises. I want to close with a story of Kara Tippetts. For me, she illustrates so many of the truths that we have been seeing in this passage this morning. 
Kara, uh, Kara Tippetts was an author. Uh, she, she wrote. Uh, she was uh, a pastor's wife. Her, her husband was a pastor. She was also the mother of four children. And she got a diagnosis of breast cancer. It made her face many of these issues that we're facing this morning. And as she faced them, she faced them with the confidence that only God can give. Six months before she died, she completed her work in writing down the journey that she'd been on, what she had learned from God, and how she had uh, the help that she had received from God. And uh, she recorded those thoughts uh, in a book called The Hardest Peace. And I want to just read a portion of that. She, she writes, My little body has grown tired of the battle, and the treatment is no longer helping. But what I see, what I know, what I have is Jesus. He has still given me breath, and with it I pray I would live well, and fade well. By degrees doing both living and dying as I have moments left to live, I get to draw my people close, kiss them, and tenderly speak love over their lives. I get to pray into, into eternity my hopes and fears for the moments of my loves. I get to laugh and cry and wonder over heaven. I do not feel like I have the courage for this journey but I have Jesus, and he will provide. He has given me so much to be grateful for, and that gratitude, that wondering over his love, will cover us all. I don't know about you, that's the way I want to die. And when I see how she dies, I realize that's not just the way to die, that's the way to live. That's the way we are to go through this life. And God brings us through this series of trials and difficulties and ups and downs to help us to see that to live is Christ. That at the end, this was how we were supposed to live. This is how we were created to live. And when we begin and realize that this is how we were created to live, then we can face death the way we lived and recognize Death is better by far. Death is great gain. And so I want to encourage you this morning, to the extent that you can think about and personalize this, own, this message of how to die and how to die in such a way that death would be great gain, I would encourage you to put Christ in the center to recognize that Jesus is enough, that life was never intended to be about all these other things that we make it about, and to say with confidence that for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's better by far. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, so often we live in a denial of death. We, we live in an avoidance of death. Help us to live in light of its reality. 
Help us to live in such a way that we can face it with confidence. And confidence not because of what we've done. Confidence because of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus stripped death of its terrors at the cross. Help us to live in light of his victory. For we praise you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.